with another episode of the Utility Strategy Podcast, the show where we bring to you industry experts who share their challenges and how they overcome them in the subsurface utility space. Um, so we today we have two very special guests uh, who have never been on the show before. The first is Lindsay Kelly, 4M's VP of Marketing. Lindsay, how are you doing? I'm doing Good. great, Dave. Not how are bad. you? And uh, the second is someone who you've probably heard of recently a lot, uh, and that is ChatGPT. And uh, what we're going to be doing today is test ChatGPT and try and figure out how knowledgeable or how well uh, does it know the subsurface utility space and its challenges. Uh, but first, uh, Lindsay, tell us, uh, tell us a bit about yourself. Well, David, I, uh, I've recently joined uh, 4M Analytics. It's been about two months now. Really excited to be here. Such an amazing product, uh, platform, software, um, database. It's uh, so many things rolled into, into one easy-to-use platform. Um, I've spent a lot of time in marketing in my career. Um, I most recently came from Trimble, um, and I actually worked with our VP of Sales Um uh, current VP of sales at 4M Analytics, Joe Eberly, while I was there. So um, I'm really excited today to uh, play the part of the, I guess you could say, translator for, for ChatGPT, because my role today is to input your questions into ChatGPT and read you the answers that yep. it provides. So uh, so let's, uh, let's get into it. Um, the first question that we have for uh, how uh, what's going to be our nickname for ChatGPT? It just seems uh, seems too long for the the ChatGPT. Yeah. Let's call. Let's call her Kathy. Kathy, okay, like Chatty Kathy. Kathy. Okay, so Kathy. Uh, so our first question for Kathy today is: What is the most catastrophic utility strike that you know of, and why? Why did it happen? Really great question. So right now she is generating her, well, we're calling her Kathy yeah. so she can be a she. She, uh, she has a very lengthy response here. So I'm just going to start by, um, by prefacing that. It may take a little while to get through, but one of the most catastrophic utility strikes in recent history is the gas explosion that occurred in San Bruno, California on September 9th, 2010. The explosion resulted wow. in the death of eight people, the injury of wow. 66 others, and destruction of 38 wow. homes. The cause of the explosion was determined to be a ruptured natural gas pipeline owned and operated by Pacific PG Gas and Electric, PG&E, yes. which had been improperly installed in the 1950s. The pipeline was buried under a residential area and had not been properly maintained or inspected over the years. The explosion occurred when the pipeline ruptured and ignited, sending a massive fireball into the air. The incident prompted investigations by the National Transportation Safety Board and the California Public Utilities Commission, which found that PG&E had a history of safety violations and inadequate record-keeping practices. The company was fined over $1 billion for its role in the explosion and was forced to implement numerous safety improvements and pipeline replacements. The San Bruno gas explosion was a tragic reminder of the importance of proper maintenance and safety protocols in utility infrastructure. It also highlighted the need 
for stricter regulation and oversight of utility companies to ensure the safety of the communities wow. they serve. I'm reading here that uh, eventually they ended up paying $5 million dollars to resolve the the blast uh, the suits over the blast that uh, that was caused wow that's uh that's crazy uh, to, but to give uh to, to give pg and e uh, some credit that uh, in the past i'd say decade we're seeing a lot of uh investment on their side in uh, protecting their uh, their utilities so they had uh, uh they had a lot of fines and not marking their uh Uh, their utilities correctly and they put a lot of effort into that and also uh, I think about a year ago with all the fires that happened in uh, the wildfires that happened in California so they're now leading a major investment in uh, undergrounding uh, which is not gas but mainly for electric but is uh, uh, there's a good chance that that will help us prevent a lot of the potential natural disasters that can happen uh, from having these overhead exposed foreign Uh, electric utilities the challenge for them is going to be though uh, seeing what's happening beneath the surface uh, because there's a lot of uh, mileage that needs to be put into the ground and I think the CEO uh, she came out and said that for a long time it wasn't the, the ROI of burying uh, the the electric uh, the electric lines and was uh, was negative so they didn't do it but now and it's kind of the first time in history where it uh, makes sense to create resilience for the network uh, to actually bury the lines and uh, well start on the grounding them uh, which is I think the the term in the industry so yeah so just, uh, not everything yeah. is bad with PGE and- right no and and they've obviously taken great uh, great measures to, to correct that and you know I've uh, One of the, the things that immediately came to my mind and I think will probably come to the minds of lots of other folks listening is um, the movie Aaron Brockovich. Um, and I'm not sure if you've ever seen it, but it, um, Aaron was um, a whistleblower um, back in 1993 in the town of Kinkley, California. Folks were getting really sick from the drinking water um, and uh, they, it was contaminated due to the uh, negligence of, of PG&E. So, Definitely uh, something that brought to light the issues uh, that they had and probably shed that light enough that it helped them to start to, to fix a lot yeah. of their issues of challenges. Yeah. So. so next, next question. Yeah. Uh, so, and I think it's in the, the same context. Uh, what are the direct and indirect costs of uh, utility strikes? All right. So here's what Shadi Cathy has to say. Utility results can... utility strikes can result in both direct and indirect costs. Direct costs include repair costs. This includes the cost of repairing or replacing the damaged utility lines or infrastructure, which can be quite expensive. Uh, fines and penalties. Depending upon the location and severity of the damage, fines and penalties may be imposed on the party responsible for the utility strike. Emergency response costs. Utility strikes can sometimes cause emergencies that require immediate response from emergency services, which can also add to the direct costs. So here's what she says for some of the indirect costs. Uh, delays and disruptions to projects. I think our audience will yeah. definitely resonate with that. Utility strikes can, can cause significant delays uh, due to construct, two construction projects, which can result in additional labor costs, project management costs, and lost productivity, um, also damage to equipment and property, 
Utility strikes can damage equipment and property, which can result in repair or replacement costs. Lost revenue, delays and disruptions to projects caused by utility strikes can also result in lost revenue, especially for businesses that depend on timely completion of projects. Really big uh, sticking point in these days with all the infrastructure funding and all the projects that have started. Uh, safety risks and liability. Utility strikes can pose safety risks to workers and the public, which can result in liability issues and increased insurance cost. And last, reputation damage. Utility strikes can also damage the reputation of the party responsible, which can result in lost opportunities and damage to their brand. And I think with, with the, the previous question, PG&E right there, you know, a lot of bad press for them with, with all their all their challenges, definitely yeah. a reputation. I think that there's uh, in uh, the late uh, Jeff Zeiss, who was a guest on our podcast and uh, part of the, the 4M uh, uh, company. Uh, so he posted on a 2020 blog, uh, sort of a range of what are the direct costs of utility strikes. And it's like the direct costs are not, not so significant, especially for uh, uh, GC utility company excavator, depending whose fault they here, but it's it like uh, I think that the the lowest here is uh, for steam pipe would be eighteen hundred bucks, and the most expensive would be for a liquid liquid pipeline, which would be about uh, uh, nearly eight thousand uh, bucks. So average, we're at about four k. So that's like for a, a multi-million dollar project, which is like a small infrastructure project, it's not really significant. But the question is, what about the, the teams uh, on the ground who are just kind of waiting around? What about the machinery that you brought on site that's not doing anything because you're waiting first to see, like, you need to fix a pipe. Then you need to decide if you're going to relocate or relocate or, or not. So you need to have the designers who are starting to kind of work and figure out uh, what, are we, what are we going to do here uh, and if it's a small relocation so fine that's that's easy but if there's a major uh, a major design um, initiative that they need to put forward so a major uh, change order that they need to present to the uh, to the owner that that's a big deal and that like that that can be uh, easily uh, e easily a significant cost of the project so. Oh, yeah, you just had a lot of heads nodding because, I mean, just think just alone, some of the, the equipment that you need to rent by the day, the, the mass, the thousands of dollars and the time lost if you don't know where you can dig with that massive yeah. piece of equipment. It's just it's mind blowing. Yeah. And there, mind -blowing. there's also the I think one of the things that we're hearing a lot of people talk about today is the fact that. Uh, GCs are always surprising the owners with more and more change orders. And uh, the thing is, depending on the, the delivery method of the, the project, is that if the, if the owner provided the utility data and, it's, and uh, the owner is liable for that uh, change order, and, it, and it's a significant one, they're not happy. They're not, they're not happy at all because they don't have anyone to blame but themselves. Yep. Yep. And, and I mean, some of the numbers that we would see just um, in the past from past lives that I would see it's uh, somewhere you know, change orders can, can be responsible for up to 15 or, or more percent of the, of the value of the contract. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just so much money in change orders. Yeah. It's, it's, 
I feel for the, the folks who have to go through yeah. that all the time. So, well, all right, what else can Chatty Cathy yeah, answer? Uh, what, is a, what is the history of uh, subsurface uh, utility engineering in the U.S.? Ah, Sue, yes, all right. So let's see, Chatty Cathy says, subsurface utility engineering, otherwise known as Sue, is a branch of civil engineering that deals with mapping and managing underground utility networks such as water, sewer, gas, and telecommunications. The history of Sioux in the U.S. can be tracked back to the 1980s when several high-profile incidents of underground utility damage led to the development of new technologies and methodologies to prevent such incidents. The first major incident that brought attention to the need for Sioux was the Kansas City Hyatt Regency walkway collapse in 1981. The collapse killed 114 people and injured over 200 others. The investigation found that the collapse was caused by a design flaw, but also identified that the construction team had accidentally severed a major beam during excavation work because they were unaware of its location due to poor record keeping of the utility lines. This incident led to a renewed focus on the need for better mapping and management of underground utilities. In response to this need, several organizations, including the American Society of Civil Engineers, the Federal Highway Administration, began to develop new standards and guidelines for Sioux. In 1990, the ASCE published the first set of Sioux standards known as ASCE 38-02, which provided a framework for classifying the accuracy of subsurface utility information. Two more paragraphs. She was very <laughs> chatty in this one. So over the next few decades, Sioux technologies continue to develop, including the use of ground penetrating radar, electromagnetic induction, and other geophysical methods to locate and map underground utilities. In 2015, the ASCE published an updated version of the Sioux standards known as ASCE 38-02, which included new guidelines for using these advanced technologies. Today, Sioux has become an essential part of infrastructure design and construction projects in the U.S., with many state and local governments requiring Sioux surveys before starting any excavation work. The use of Sioux has helped to reduce the risk of underground utility damage and improve the efficiency of safety of construction projects. Yeah, that was, wow, a, that was a lot, lot, uh, lot that to, was... Uh, to unpack there. Uh, the last, uh, I'm not sure about the dates though, uh, of the, like, I, I think there's a chance that, that uh, uh, Chatty Cathy is, uh, is a bit wrong there. Because uh, if I, we had Jim Ansbach on one of the episodes, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, the, the standard was released in the, around the 2000s, early 2000s, uh, not 1990. That sounds a bit too, too early for me. Uh, but I don't know. We need to. I don't. I don't accurately recall. So we need to check with uh, uh, with Jim. But something that I do uh, that we are seeing is uh, states taking more and more, paying more and more attention to uh, the need for accurate utility data. And we can see it in Colorado with their legislation that um, uh, that utility records uh, must be held to a Sioux standard, and that before you start digging, you need to. Uh, use Sioux data, uh, which is mandated by law. There's challenges of enforcing that, but, uh, but that, that's what they've uh, put forward and are doing today. And we're also seeing in the places like Texas where the DOT uh, uh, mandates, like this, is a, this isn't in any law, but they mandate the fact that 
contractors and engineers use suit data uh, for any project that they have. So I'd say that there are very uh, significant strides that have been taken in the industry since uh, that first utility strike uh, in what was it, the 1980s is what they said? I don't know the first, uh, yeah, the first one, but uh, yeah. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I think that something that stands out to me was the, the poor record keeping of the utility lines, which I know is something David, we see all the time um, with our, with our mapping team being able to, you know, go in, um, utilize the AI conflation engine to put aggregate a lot of data together, but then also use visual imagery to say, hmm, this scarring here says this isn't actually yeah. here. It's over here. Um, you know, sometimes in the, the case of this particular story, it can be life and death. Um, so it's, you know, it's quite a big deal to make sure that you know where things are under the ground. Um, you know, something that I don't think a lot of us think about every day. Yeah. But definitely, uh, I think the folks that listen to this podcast do. Um, but, you know, for those of us newer yeah. to the industry, you know, that you don't yeah. think about every day. I think, though, that, uh, you know, it's it's the realm, the new continent of subsurface utilities, it's, it's not new, but uh, it feels new because it's getting more and more headlines today be, because as we uh, expand globally as humans and we create more and more cities, the underground is becoming more and more dense. And even though we'd expect that with uh, technology and standards and, uh, uh, and SOPs and, and whatever, we'll see a sort of a decline in the utility strikes, it's only getting worse. And I think that we're kind of at a tipping point where we need to, uh, as an industry, start doing things very, very, very different. And I think this is all over construction where there needs to be some sort of adoption of uh, uh, data-driven uh, technologies. Because what we're not sharing amongst us, what we're not sharing amongst all stakeholders of the project is uh, and it's kind of siloed in our uh, specific needs for the project is uh, is hurting and creating and creating risk for the project and risk for the people risk to the schedule risk to the cost and uh, and specifically in, in regarding subsurface utilities utilities which is the biggest risk of all projects because it's the biggest variable like it's the biggest unknown uh, so there is a, a huge huge need need for that. And uh, hopefully we'll see uh, more companies like ours that are trying to uh, do good in this space and create more and more of that data. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you know, just from a couple of recent conferences that I've, I've been attending as I'm trying to learn more about the industry is, you know, listening to the challenges and the frustrations of the folks that are on these job sites saying, there's not enough people here to do the locates. I can't get them out here. Um, you know, I put in my ticket or, you know, something took a little longer. So now I have to put in the ticket again, but, you know, just not having the people to, to go out and, and do what's needed is, is challenging. So how do we solve that problem with, with technology? So bigger question than, than yeah. I think, uh, I don't know if, chat I don't GPT know if, uh can answer. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> let's see what, what else so. do we have here? Um, Okay, here, here's an interesting uh, question, piggybacking off your last uh, last statement. 
why is it so hard for utility owners to share their utility data with project stakeholders um, who are designing a project near their assets? And to give a bit of context to, yep. the, to the question, so we get a lot of feedback for customers or partners in the industry that, uh, okay, I figured out who uh, who's the utility owner uh, of that pipeline uh, where I want to excavate. And now I'm reaching out to this utility owner and maybe they don't respond. Maybe they tell me to wait 90 days and don't contact me in uh, 90 days. And maybe they ask me to get in my car and drive six hours to an abandoned warehouse where I need to kind of uh, pick out that hard copy from the, uh, the forgotten basement in the, the outskirts of the town that no one's ever heard of. Uh, and there is a huge challenge for uh, utility owners to share, uh, to share data. Um, so uh, why does uh, Kathy think that is? Let's see. Well, she says here there are several reasons why it can be challenging for utility owners to share their utility data with project stakeholders designing a project near their assets. She has five. So number one, data privacy concerns. Utility owners are often bound by privacy regulations that restrict the sharing of sensitive information such as location data or specific details about their infrastructure. Two, liability. Utility owners may be hesitant to share data if they are concerned about potential liabilities or risks associated with the construction or operation of nearby projects. Three, lack of standardization. There's often a lack of standardization in the way utility data is collected, stored, and shared, which can make it difficult to share information in a way that is useful and meaningful to project stakeholders. Four, limited resources, as we just mentioned. Uh, utility owners may not have the necessary resources or personnel to manage and share their data effectively. Five, communication barriers. Communication between utility owners and project stakeholders can be challenging especially if there are different languages or technical jargon being used. In conclusion, she says, overall, it is important for utility owners and project stakeholders to work together to establish clear communication channels and protocols for sharing information. This can help to build trust and ensure that all parties are able to access the information they need to design and build safe, efficient projects. So there are some things there that I, uh, I, I understand to some degree, and some of them just seem like uh, like excuses. I think the standardization and the util utilization of the data, I think, is a bit of an excuse. Uh, but there is a lot there which is uh, which which has some truth to it. And, you know, when we were at the uh, when we had that uh, joint event with uh, Texas A One, and there was a uh, uh, telco guy there, uh, a telco rep there, who said, "Hey." Guys, I'm willing to share my data if the rest of you are willing to share it too. And I think that we've kind of, there's an industry uh, narrative that we don't want to share as facility owners, as utility owners. We don't want to share our data because we're afraid that the competition is going to know where, uh, where our pipelines and where our fibers are, are buried. And then uh, our competitors will know where we want to expand to. Uh, but if we're very honest with ourselves, they, today in 2023, they know. They know where everyone is going. They know where everyone is building assets. And the real question is today, who's fastest? Who's going to be the fastest person to, to get there? And when we have uh, and when we're not sharing data, we're slowing everyone down. 
and especially where we're slowing ourselves down because uh, as the utility owners, because also the utility owners, when they want to expand their network, they need to get utility data. And they and if their their uh, colleagues, if their counterparts in the industry aren't sharing the data, so like it, it's kind of jamming everyone up. Uh, and I think we're seeing a, we're seeing a shift in that. I think we're seeing more and more utility owners that are kind of okay. How do I uh, how do I accelerate my the construction of my network? And uh, thinking about okay, so maybe it's time that we start sharing this uh, this utility data. Which brings us to another challenge that I think that a lot of uh, utility owners don't want to admit this, but they don't have the data. They haven't. They had. They haven't cataloged yeah. it. They haven't made it digital. They haven't made it uh, uh, usable uh, for the designers and the the engineers creating these projects. And I think that once there's some sort of mandated uh, or legislative initiative to kind of uh, uh, put that out there, we're going to see a lot of pushback from them because it's going to put them in some sort of a position where they need to admit the, the catastrophic state of uh, data data storage and data collection that they, they have. Uh, but maybe that will, yeah. No, so. it's, it's, uh, it's very true. And so I asked Chatty Cathy a follow-up question. I said, how can we navigate around the data privacy concerns for the yeah. betterment of the industry? Now, mind you, I'm sitting inside of the same chat. Every time you're asking a question, I'm starting a new chat, GPT, yeah. like a new chat within it, so that it's not feeding off of the one prior to it. So it's giving us uh, its fresh perspective each time. But this one I left inside the same chat. And so yeah, she actually isn't too far off from, from your thoughts wow. and opinions as well. Uh, yeah, so I'm not gonna read the whole thing this time, but you know, she does say one way to address data privacy concerns is to establish clear guidelines and protocols for data sharing. These guidelines should outline what types of data will be shared, how the data will be shared, who will have access to the data, and what safeguards will be in place to protect sensitive information. So I thought that was it. She also um, said that utility owners can explore the use of, and I'm gonna butcher this word, anonymization. <laughs> techniques <Yeah. laughs> um, such as masking encryption to protect sensitive data while still allowing stakeholders to access the information they need um, and then she did also touch on what you did which was the collaborative efforts to develop industry standards yeah. for data sharing you know so, another another pushback that uh, we've heard a, a few times uh, is the homeland security argument which is uh, kind of we don't want bad yes. actors knowing where the utilities are buried so they can't uh, 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 poison our exactly. water blow, or blow up yeah. pipelines or do whatever that the bad actors want to do um, and then uh, right. one of our uh, uh, one of our supporters uh, commented on that on this argument and he said there are hundreds of thousands of utility strikes a year how many bad actor incidents have we had a year so when you look just at the, the pure risk factor of what's more important to deal with right now, it's, it's the fact that we're having accidental utility strikes. The second point is that I think that bad actors, if they really want to poison our water or blow up our pipelines, the data is out there. Like the data really is out there. Like if you want to blow yeah. a pipeline up in Texas, go onto the Railroad Commission website, look into their GIS uh, uh, platform and you'll find the pipeline. You'll find any pipeline that you want in Texas. And it's not like, and there are others uh, like this all across the country. 
other platforms like this. Uh, so I think that there's uh, in 2023, there's no more excuses for having that one source of truth with all the utility data in it. And it needs to be out there so everyone can use it. Agreed. What's next? Okay, what's next? Um, okay, I have an interesting one here. What are the most effective industry standards for gathering utility data and preventing utility strikes? Let's see if uh, Kathy really knows our industry. Oh, let's see. Um, so to prevent utility strikes, there are several industry standards for gathering utility data that can be effective, including one, call before you dig. We, hopefully we all know about that one, 811. The standard requires contractors to contact their local one call center before digging to request information about the location of buried utilities. This information can help them avoid hitting underground utilities during construction. Two, utility mapping. Utility mapping involves identifying and mapping the location of underground utilities, including gas lines, water pipes, and electric cables. This information can be used to create detailed maps that contractors can reference to avoid utility strikes. Non-destructive excavation. Non-destructive excavation techniques, such as hydrovac excavation, use high-pressure water and vacuum technology to safely expose underground utilities without damaging them. This allows contractors to verify the location of utilities before digging. Here's one of, one of our favorites, David. Use of technology. Advanced technology, such as ground-penetrating radar, can be used to detect underground utilities and their location. This can be especially useful in areas where utility maps are incomplete or outdated. This is where I think she's also missing the AI conflation engine of being able to aggregate lots of data together to get these maps. So she's she's missing that, but we can't be upset with her because her uh, her knowledge base is limited to everything input into her system yep. up until 2021. And the use of the imagery to, to verify the, the records. Yep. Exactly. Um, and then five is training and education. Training and education programs can help contractors and utility companies to understand the risks associated with utility strikes and how to prevent them. This includes providing training on best practices for excavation, the use of technology, and safe work practices. So I'm very disappointed. Not one mention of Sue. Yeah. Not one mention of the quality levels. No. We no quality level D, like maybe A with a bit of a the hydro vacuum and maybe. Uh, GPR and uh, the 4B, but I'd expect like a detailed, th these are the quality levels in the industry. This is how we uh, collect utility data. This is what they mean. Um, very disappointed with the, without Chatty Cathy. Not, uh, not. Well, let's, let's give her a little more context. She's only as good as what we put in there. So let's say what are more detailed ways Let's see. Let's see what comes see up. Let's see what comes up. Sure. Here are more ways to gather utility data and prevent utility strikes. Oh, let's see. So she's back to call before you dig. Oh, all she's doing is expanding upon the, the five that she already has. But uh, I'm not seeing anything come up about Sue. So. I think give, give her a hint. A Ask her if she would include uh, Sue in these uh, methods and techniques. Let's see. And, and if so, what do you know about Sue? 
she is thinking. She says, yes, <laughs> subsurface utility engineering is an important technique and can be used to gather utility data and prevent utility strikes. It was a process that involves using various geophysical and surveying techniques to accurately locate and map the location of underground utilities. Uh, the data collected through SUE can be used to create detailed maps and 3D models that can be used to plan construction projects and avoid utility strikes. Um, and then she does go on and she lists in detail the, the, the quality level A, B, C, D, um, and goes on to say that she's valuable in preventing utility strikes um, in combination with other industry standards, such as called before you dig, and then she lists the five. She's sticking by her five. Okay. <laughs> Okay, we'll we'll take it. So next next question: um, Is it possible to create a national map of subsurface utilities, and how would you do so? If so, she is thinking, thinking, blinking. So, oh, she says yes, yes. It is possible to create a national map of subsurface utilities, and several countries have already done so. Here are some steps that could be taken to create such a map. Conduct a comprehensive survey of all subsurface utilities. This can be done using a variety of methods, including ground, ground penetrating radar, electromagnetic surveys, and vacuum excavation. The survey should include all underground utilities, such as gas pipelines, water mains, sewage systems, fiber optic cables, and electric conduits. Collect and compile the data. Once the data is complete, look, she's, she's giving us the step-by-step -step instructions, but she's making it sound really easy to do. No, I don't. <laughs> just break down that first one for me, David. If you were to map, let's just say the state of Florida, no. where I live, using only ground penetrating radar, electromagnetic surveys, and vacuum excavation, I, uh, how long would that take? I don't even know how to start assessing that, but uh, I, don't think, I don't think that's an achievable, <laughs> uh, uh, an achievable task. Uh, but in, let alone creating like the, the entire United States. I don't uh, like, especially not with boots on the ground, like GPR. I don't think GPRs are the, the solution today because, and we're even, I think, seeing this, uh, like the evidence for that today, right? Because when do we call out the, the, the field investigators, the guys who are boots on the ground, the closer we get to construction, because we know that that, uh, that, that project is actually going to happen and we're actually interested in making that investment, that six-figure, probably six-figure investment, uh, if not bigger, depending on the size of the project, of sending a team into the field. But when we're at the kind of early stages of design of uh, two years, three years before that project even starts, we're not spending six figures on someone who's just going to go uh, investigate one or two miles. It's not going to happen because when we're at that stage, we want to look at the whole project, which can be I don't know, 10 square miles or 20 square miles. Like we want to be able to uh, to maybe do some route, route concept planning. Like there are a million things that we want to uh, take into account. So we don't even have the opportunity to do that today because field investigation isn't able to, to grasp that type of project in such a short period of time and in such a low uh, uh, financial cost. So... I don't like to, to answer the, the question. I doubt we're going to be seeing uh, someone do that uh, manually with boots on the ground anytime soon. So 
But nothing in there about AI, no. nothing in there about, about aerial and satellite imagery. Let's know we've got collect and compile data, verify and update data, checking with public records, <laughs> creating a JS database, um, develop communication and sharing protocol, and then update. I would expect regularly. from an intelligence of chat GPT-4 to be able to come up with a plan uh, of how to how to do that, but uh, maybe to share with the audience what uh, our devious plan of making that happen is. Uh, so we're for M is on a on a mission of uh, uh, creating the first national map of, uh, of of subsurface utilities in the United States, and the way we're doing that is first we're uh, we've collected millions and millions of sources and records uh, of subsurface utility data, and we've put them in a AI conflation engine, which is basically able to tell the difference between uh, what's, uh, what are records that you can count on and what are records that are probably you shouldn't be using. Uh, so there's that level. And then we have another layer, which is we have access to uh, 60 borderline 70 years of uh, satellite and aerial imagery. And we've developed uh, computer vision algorithms and techniques that are able to scan this imagery and look for what we call visual evidence uh, that indicate towards the existence of uh, buried utilities. So for example, if we see imagery from 2001 of an excavator uh, with his pipelines near a trench uh, that starts uh, next to a, a sewage plant and ends at the outskirts of Austin, so we know what's there. And if we see a, a, a scar marks or we see valves or manholes or any other type of visual evidence, we're able to basically say, okay, there's something here. And then what we do is we put these two layers together, the records with the imagery, and basically we're able to verify uh, the records using, uh, using the imagery. Um, and because we're... Uh, uh, using millions of records and looking at, at at imagery. So we're able to do this at scale and not just focus on that one small mile of, of a highway or two miles of highway. We're able to map out entire states. So for example, 4M is uh, uh, we've already mapped out the entire state of Texas. We've mapped out California, uh, which I think accounts for about 10% of the United States in total. Uh, we've got Florida coming up. We've got uh, New York, possibly Colorado, uh, and probably, uh, I think, uh, what is it, uh, 10 states by the end of the year, which will probably be the biggest states in the, in the U.S. Uh, so I'm a bit uh, also here. They might not be the biggest. Oh, yeah. Like New York yeah. isn't the biggest, but it definitely. If you've ever been to New York City, you know that they're constantly the doing spaghetti work. bowl of utilities in downtown Manhattan. Yeah, yeah that's. Uh, it's like spaghetti. Exactly. It's like spaghetti. <laughs> so I think I think uh, like I'm a bit disappointed with uh, with Kathy for. Uh, uh, kind of depicting like a very manual way of creating such a map like I, that's completely unrealistic um so it really is i mean there's no it's it would be like trying to you know take a lawn mower and mow yeah. like when you mow your lawn and just like mow, mow oh, i have, I have a follow-up question for her <laughs> for for her why hasn't it done before maybe she can uh, maybe she can enlighten us why isn't why 
yeah. why hasn't it been done before? Well, I already asked her a follow-up question. I asked her about AI okay. and technology. And um, uh, let me read that first, and then we'll go back. Um, yes, AI can definitely help in the creation of a national map of subsurface utilities. She lists machine learning, remote sensing, augmented reality, mobile mapping techniques, um, and cloud computing. I'm not impressed. <laughs> Me either. Me either. But 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 I will say, I mean, it's it's what a lot of people are seeing that's mainstream right now with ChatGPT and and Dolly, which is the one that can do the the image. Uh, you can at request an image. I would like a woman on a unicorn, like the utility unicorn yeah. that we work with, Stephanie, um, flying over an interstate. And it'll just create it for you based upon its its algorithms and the data yeah. that it's been fed. Um, so, you know, but what, what David was just describing with the AI conflation engine, it's like, that's the real world and what really is going on behind the scenes. Um, maybe not as sexy as being able to create a woman on a unicorn flying over an interstate, but um, very sexy to probably to the audience that's listening right now. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so, we, we have a, we yeah. have a last question Maybe. that we uh, we often ask our guests, which is who should be the next guest on the Utility Strategy Podcast? Yeah, oh, let's see. let's see. Okay. Who should be the next guest on the Utility strategy podcast oh let's see what she says she's thinking <laughs> as an ai language model i don't have access to information about upcoming events <laughs> um, but she does, ha she does have some suggestions for potential guests based upon their experience in in utility strategy uh, so she goes on to list um, industry analysts or consultants, CEOs of successful utility companies, uh, representatives from regulatory agencies, um, sustainability experts, technology experts who can discuss how innovations such as AI and a list of other things are impacting the industry and how companies can leverage these technologies to improve efficiency and customer experience. So. Nobody specific, but she gave us some some ideas for folks that we can. I think we definitely to. can't count on ChatGPT to solve the challenges of subsurface utilities. I think that's the lesson learned from today. I think yeah. you're right. Key takeaway. All right. <laughs> but that was a lot of fun, David. I'm so excited that I was able yeah. to join you on the show and to play the part of ChatGPT. I should have tried to do a more robotic <laughs> voice. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, for, maybe for next time. <laughs> maybe for the next version of ChatGPT, we'll, we'll do a new one, see if they, uh, they get any smarter. Perfect. Good. Perfect. Thanks, uh, Lindsay, and thanks, uh, ChatGPT, for being on the show. Thank you, David. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs>